All right, You Are God Alone. What an appropriate song that is for, for any day and every day, but especially uh, this day as we look at this passage of Scripture that's before us this morning. I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 31. Uh, we'll be in verses 22 through 55 today. We'll continue studying uh, the life of the patriarch Jacob. Genesis 31, verses 22 and following. The sermon title is The Great Escape. And most of us are familiar with the name of the, what's considered to be the greatest escape artist in history, Harry Houdini. In 1904, Houdini was challenged to escape handcuffs that took someone five years to make. In a period of a little over 70 minutes of struggling and, and all the different uh, techniques that Houdini tried to employ, after 70 minutes, he eventually emerged successful in removing those handcuffs that took someone five years to make. He later said it was his greatest challenge that he ever faced as an escape artist. This morning, I want to ask you, what is your greatest challenge? What is it that's shackling you today that you are straining and striving and struggling, trying to break free from? For Jacob, it was his uncle Laban. He had been handcuffed to this devious uncle now for 20 years and felt the leading of God to go back to the promised land. But the question before him is how could he possibly escape the clutches of this devious uncle? The answer to Jacob's question is the same for you as you think about struggling and breaking free for whatever it is that shackles you today. When faced with insurmountable odds, you must draw confidence from God's greatness. As you look at the obstacle before you that appears so great, the only way you can overcome that, the only way you can draw confidence is to do so by focusing on the greatness of God, who is truly God alone. Let me invite you to stand with me if you're able to this morning. Out of reverence for the reading of the Holy Word of God, we look at Genesis 31, starting at verse 22. These words were written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled... Then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done by deceiving me? and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and deceive me, and do not tell me so, that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with timbrel and with lyre, and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob replied to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live. 
in the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today, the sovereign God of the universe, the one who has made all things, the one who sustains all things, and the one who has the power by your great grace to save those who trust in Jesus. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes today to the, to the truth of this message, this text that you inspired, that we may see, Lord, something in there that is timeless and eternal, something in this story that happened thousands of years ago that is still true today, something that impacts us today as we seek to escape what it is that shackles us. Father, help us to focus on your greatness. Help us, God, to draw confidence, not from our own abilities, God, but by resting in the sufficiency of Jesus and his great power and his awesome love for us. Father, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we've been looking at Jacob's life over the course of the last several weeks, we have seen Jacob come to the point that after 20 years of frustration and after a, a divine confirmation through a dream, we see Jacob has finally decided it is time to head home. So he packs up his wives and his children and all of his possessions. We read last week that they crossed the Euphrates River and he set his face on the promised land. Headed back to Canaan. But for Jacob, the struggle is not over. And it's an important lesson for us. Just because you decide you're going to follow Jesus, just because you decide that God is leading you in a certain direction, doesn't mean it's not going to be without obstacles. There's going to be a struggle. Because God is shaping you as he was shaking, shaping Jacob here, molding him into something greater, greater than he could ever be on his own. The struggle that Jacob was facing came, first of all, in the accusation against Jacob. The accusation, we just read about that, Laban felt like he had been wronged. He felt like what Jacob had done to him and, and leaving in the middle of the night and, and leaving while he was away shearing his sheep and leaving without telling anyone and in Laban's terms, stealing his gods. Laban felt like he had done wrong and he, and he thought to, to bring about vengeance himself. We see that played out, first of all, in a hurried pursuit. As Roscoe Pico Train says, he was in hot pursuits. And we read this, we see the harmful intentions that Laban had. It said that he... He took his kinsman with him and he pursued him a distance of seven days. It took Jacob ten days to get there, but Laban only seven. And it says he overtook him. And in verse 25, it talks about pitching his tents and camped there. These are military terms. In Laban's mind, he was ready to punish Jacob for what he had done. But we see next a holy prohibition. In verse 24, God came. And God didn't come to Jacob in this dream. It says, God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream. He, 
he specifies here that this was not one of Abraham's descendants. But God still came to him in a dream and he said, be careful. God warned him, be careful that you do not speak to Jacob. And this was kind of surprising to me when I, when I looked at this and studied this a little more. Don't speak to him either good or bad. Now, it would make sense to us if God said, don't you dare speak anything bad to Jacob. But God tells him, don't speak anything good or bad. We might think of that in terms of, do not either bless or curse him. Why? Because it was not in Laban's power to do either one. Laban did not have authority over Jacob. Only God did. And by virtue of God's sovereign decree, Jacob was the one truly in authority over Laban. So God warns him and tells him, be careful, do not either bless or curse him. You're in no position here to do either one. He's in my hands. For the holy prohibition is followed by a heated provocation. Because what we have here is two opposing camps. In verse 25 and following, they pitched his tent in the hill country, Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. And so you have two opposing camps here. And the theme throughout the remainder of this chapter is two in opposition. And uncertainty abounds here. Jacob's probably thinking here, Laban's going to have my head. He has come after me with, with this army, with, this, with these soldiers. He's angry at me because he thinks I defrauded him. He has no idea about Laban's household gods. But we see, first of all, the charges that were made. To Jacob's pleasant surprise, the only thing Laban hurled at him was words. Okay, I can deal with that. (laughs) Laban caught up with Jacob and he pitched his tent and he says to him, What have you done? What have you done by deceiving me? Laban's a fine one to talk about deception because he's been doing that to Jacob for 20 years now. But after all, Jacob's name means supplanter, one who grabs the heel. Deceiver, why would you deceive me? Well, duh, he's, he's a deceiver. It's what he does. But to Jacob's credit, he had not done what Laban accuses him of doing to an extent. He said, why did you carry away my, daughter, my daughters like captives of the sword? He didn't do that. Remember, he asked his daughters, are you with me or are you not? And they said, we're going with you. He said, why did you flee secretly and deceive me? And and I would have thrown this big party for you, sent you away with joy and songs and timbrel and lyre. Does that sound like Laban's character to you, everything we've read about him so far? No. Jacob couldn't trust Laban as far as he could throw him. And, And Jacob did deserve to be sent off back to the promised land with a celebration full of joy. But he knew better. He knew, if I don't leave secretly, there's no way this man's going to let me leave in peace. And he says, so why did you steal away secretly? Why did you not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now he acts like he has concern and compassion. When his own daughters said last passage, you know, Dad sold us like property and then consumed all of our money. We have nothing left because of him. But now supposedly he's interested and cares about them. 
And notice what he says in verse 29. It is in my power to do you harm, but God. Oh, really? You think you've got the power, but a greater power has intervened. I've got the power to harm you, but the God of your father Abraham came to me and said, don't speak good or bad. And so what does Laban do? He listens to God. He does not harm Jacob at all. But your God came to me. Verse 30, Now, you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Okay, now we've gotten to the truth, the, the whole kernel of this situation here. Laban's not so much upset that Jacob left, although Jacob had prospered him up to a point till Jacob began to prosper more than him. What really ticked him off was that he thought Jacob stole his idols. You stole my trinkets, my, my household gods, the, the ones that represented higher powers and deities to me. Why did you steal my gods? Don't you see the irony in this? I've got the power to crush you. But your God said don't do it. Why'd you steal my gods? Whose gods are greater here? His little trinkets or the God of Jacob? And that's the theme. I mentioned the two oppositions throughout this chapter. The primary theme here is the greatness of God juxtaposed over against these useless idols made by human hands. The charges that were leveled at him. Why did you steal my gods? And then the challenge comes back from Jacob. Jacob says to him in verse 31, I, I was afraid for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. And that's perfectly in line with his character to do that. He says, the one with whom you find your gods. No, it's not Jacob's gods. Why would I want your gods? I've got my own God. My own God's greater than your God's. The one to whom you find your God shall not live. He says, bring them out here. Point it out in the presence of all your, your kinsmen here. If you find anything in my belongings that belongs to you. And he did not know Rachel had stolen them. Ignorance is bliss sometimes. He was so confident. He said, Laban, I don't have anything that belongs to you. Let's, let's assemble everybody here and let's have, let's have court. And let's provide the evidence. Anything I have that belongs to you, let's bring it out. And whoever has it, they deserve to die. Didn't know that Rachel had stolen her father's idols. And then we see in verse 33 and 35, the cheat. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and the tent of the two maids, but did not find them. And so nobody in the story knows Rachel has the gods, except Rachel and us. And so the reader we're seeing, and you can see the drama unfold. Laban goes to Jacob's tent, Leah's tent, the maid's tent. Last one left, Rachel's. Is he going to find the idols in Rachel's tent? Verse 34, Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. What powerful gods these are that she sticks them in a saddle and she sits on them. 
And these are the idols that Laban is so upset. You stole my gods. She's sitting on his gods, these puny gods. Sitting on them, defiling them with their backside. And Laban felt through all the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry, that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. <laughs> it's a polite way of saying to her dad, you know, I'm menstruating. I can't get up right now. And so, so he searched but did not find the household idols. You see here, Rachel had learned how to trick people from the best of tricksters there was, her husband and her father. She's just doing what she has seen her whole life. Lying, deceiving, cheating, stealing, and thought nothing of it. These puny gods versus the God of all creation. Now, one of the coolest things that's been invented here in recent times is the remote control locator button. Y'all know what I'm talking about on your, on your, uh, on your, your uh, DVR there, and you, you walk into the living room and you can't find the remote anywhere. And if you've got little kids around, you, you know why you can't find it anywhere. And so you go up to the receiver and you push this little button that says locate remote, and you wait a little bit, and then you start hearing the faint little beeps going off. And then you find it jammed down into the seat cushions or in the bedroom or on the bathroom sink, somewhere where the remote control should not be. <laughs> you find it. Laban wished he had an idol locator button where he could push the button and his idols would cry out, Laban, here we are. Help us. We're underneath this woman's backside sitting on a camel. Help. There was no such button. His idols could not speak. But there was a God who spoke. A God who spoke not only to Jacob, but Jacob's God spoke to Laban and said, don't you harm. Don't you harm Jacob. And even though Jacob's God spoke to him and his idols were so puny they couldn't even talk, Laban still searched frantically for an idol that was so puny and worthless when the God of all creation had spoken clearly to him. And when we say, how foolish is Laban? How foolish are you and I? When we pursue idols and we search frantically for something that we think is going to bring us joy and bring us pleasure, but is really worthless... It's useless. It's nothing. But we search frantically, high and low, trying to find our idols, whatever they may be. When there is a God who has spoken loud and clear. In Jacob's journey back home, we see his accusation that he was faced with. But secondly, we see the aggravation of Jacob his aggravation. One man can only take so much. And he was at his wit's end, and finally he just has it. We, we read nothing in the text up to this point where Jacob vents about his uncle. That time is now. Jacob's had all he can stand, and he can't stand no more. He's aggravated, first of all, because of the disruptive presence 
the disruptive present. He became angry and contended with Laban, and he said to him, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? He was on his journey, but now his journey had been stopped, had been halted. He says, You felt through all my goods. What have you found in all of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. He says, we've been journeying here, me and my wives, my loving kids, and you've stopped us, and then you've gone through all my stuff. You've, you've, you've rummaged all my stuff. And if you've ever traveled with children before, you know you don't want to stop, although your kids make you stop, and you don't want your stuff all rummaged everywhere, and your kids do that. But here, it's not his kids, it's his uncle, it's his father, his gr- this grown man. <laughs> you've stopped our journey, and you've pillaged all of our stuff and made a huge mess, and you've not found a single solitary thing. I've had it. And not only this, what you've done here now, but the whole dishonest past. The dishonest past. He says, these 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes, your goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. Whatever was torn by beasts, I didn't bring it to you. I bore the loss myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or by night. And thus I was by day, the heat consumed me. The frost by night, my sleep fled from my eyes. That's a bad feeling, isn't it? You ever have that happen to you? Where the sleep just flees from your eyes. Jacob said, that was me for 20 years. For 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you. I've been faithful to you. I've served you for your two daughters for six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages ten times. Enough is enough, man. Stop. Stop. Leave me alone. For 20 years I've served you faithfully, and yet I get this mistreatment even to the very end. But for Jacob, his aggravation was not overcoming because he had confidence because of the divine protection that he had in verse 42. He said, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, the one who Isaac feared and revered, if he had not been with me, if he had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. Jacob said, not only have I had enough of this mistreatment, so too has God. God is for me. That's the only reason I'm still alive. And God has seen my affliction. He's noticed what you've done to me. He rendered judgment. Your gods are worthless compared to my God, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. He is my God. Where are your gods? Nobody knows. I know where my God is. And I know what my God has done for me. Abraham Lincoln was once asked whether he thought God was on the side of the north. His answer was, My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is that we are on God's side, for God is always right. You see, up to this point, Jacob was not on God's side. He was doing things his own way. He was doing Jacob's stuff. 
deceiving and lying and tricking, conniving, scheming. But now he's slowly starting to come around. He's starting to realize how awesome and powerful the God of his papaw and the God of his daddy truly was. The fear of Isaac. If God had not been for me, you would have sent me away empty-handed. Jacob finally is moving in the right direction. He's acknowledging this God who appeared to him in a dream at Bethel over 20 years ago. The aggravation of Jacob is followed by the arrangement with Jacob. After lack of proof, Laban says, you know what, let's enter into this arrangement, this non-aggression pact. He had, he had nothing else, no other recourse. He had to save face somehow because he looked like an idiot. In front of all of his kinsmen and all of Jacob's kinsmen, there he was, you stole my gods, and his gods were nowhere to be found. And Jacob said, I've had it with you. You're a bully, and you bullied me for the last time. I'm leaving. And Laban says, okay. Uh, Verse 43 replied, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or their children whom they have born? Hollow words. He might have thought they were his. They were no longer his. They belonged to Jacob. He knew that. Everybody knew that. He said, so now come, let us make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. This covenant, we see first of all the symbolism of the covenant. You see, Jacob didn't need this covenant. He was going to do what God called him to do, whether Laban liked it or not. He didn't need an agreement. Laban needed to save face. But yet Jacob here was ready to move past this situation. I'm ready to put this all behind me and move on. Whatever i got to do to make that happen, let's do it. So the symbolism comes, first of all, Jacob took a stone and he set it up as a pillar. Remind you of anything? It's what he did whenever God appeared to him in that dream, when the stairway to heaven. He set up a pillar and said, this represents that God is in this place. So Jacob again does this. It reminds him, it's symbolic of, of what happened to him when God first appeared to him. And he says to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and they made a heap and they ate there by the heap. The stones represent this covenant agreement. These stones symbolized their agreement. And they made these heaps. And this heap had, had two names. Laban called it Jagar Sahadatha, but Jacob called it Galid. And I don't blame him. It's a lot easier to say. But Laban named it an Aramaic name, and Jacob named it a Hebrew name. Means those that heap represented two separate nations. From this point forward, Jacob was his own nation. Laban was his own nation. And Laban, it says, therefore, this heap is a witness between you and me this day Therefore it was named Galid and Mizpah, for he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. So the symbolism of the covenant is followed by the statement of the covenant. The heap is a witness to us. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man may see it, God is witness between you and me. In other words, Laban says, I don't trust you, 
but I can no longer do anything about what you're doing. And so God is witness that you're going to do the right thing, especially to my daughters. Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold the pillar which I have set before you and me. This heap is a witness, this pillar is a witness, that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm, and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. So the statement was, as he witnesses to us this agreement here, that you're not going to come my way and hurt me, I'm not going to come that way and hurt you. And Jacob says, man, that sounds wonderful. Stay away from me. So there they set up this heap and this pillar. And the statement is, you will not pass and I will not pass. And notice what happens here in verse 53. Laban says, the God of Abraham... And the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. In other words, the God of Abraham and then the, the, the gods that his ancestors worshipped, two different deities, they are the witness to this covenant. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Jacob said, you can swear by whoever you want to swear by, whatever gods you want to call upon. I'm going to swear by the only living, true God the one of my father, the one my father feared. He is the one I know. He is the one I have a relationship with. He's the one that I trust and belong to. So the statement was made, although there's all these other gods that other people worship, Jacob says, the God of Abraham and Isaac, that's my God. I swear by him alone, thank you. I am my own person. He is my own God. Why would I swear by your silent, puny, lost gods. I swear by the God who is alive and the God who speaks. The God who spoke to you, the God that you chose not to worship, even though you listened to Him and obeyed Him. The statements followed by the sacrifice of the covenant. Verse 54, Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain. The sacrifice was an important aspect of the covenant in that culture. What it represents is that when an animal was butchered, the two parties would say, if, if I break my end of the deal, may I end up like that butchered animal? So it was a serious deal to them. But it also represents that something innocent had to die in order for that covenant to be ratified. In order for that agreement to be permanent, there had to be an innocent victim to die as a sacrifice. The sacrifice is followed by the success of the covenant, verse 54 and following. It says, and uh, they called their kinsmen together on that, and, uh, on that mountain. They ate a meal and they spent the night there. Early in the morning, Laban arose and he kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Doesn't mention he did anything to Jacob. <laughs> then Laban departed and returned to his place. He leaves Jacob alone. He leaves the pages of Scripture. And he leaves the only one in which he had any contact with the only God that could truly save him. He chose to hang on to his gods, his idols, even though, even though he lost them. He still chose to worship something that was not real. But for Jacob here, he finally was able to break free. And his lesson for us is that when you are faced with insurmountable odds, you must draw confidence from the greatness of God. It's not the great obstacle that's before you. It's the greatness of God who is above 
and more powerful. Jacob, in many aspects, is like his grandfather Abraham and like his descendant Moses. You see, all three of them had to leave a foreign land because God said so and travel to the promised land. Jacob doing what Abraham did years before. Jacob doing what his descendants would do in the Exodus. But all three of these symbolize for us something. Leaving the foreign land because God said so. Journeying to the land of promise. Symbolizes for us the work of redemption that Christ did for us on the cross. We want to talk about breaking free of something. Whether you acknowledge it or not, or whether you understand or know this or not, the greatest obstacle that you and I face, the thing that handcuffs us more than anything else in this world, is sin. It's not whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever circumstance or situation you have going on in your life right now. That's not your greatest threat. Your greatest threat is sin. You have sinned against the holy God, and you deserve judgment. You deserve condemnation. You deserve the wrath of God poured out on you for all eternity in hell. Your sin is your greatest obstacle. It has handcuffed you. But God says, leave the sin, journey with me to the promised land. And via the death of Christ on the cross, that shackle, that chain, that sin has on your heart and your mind and your body and your soul, that chain is broken. And God says, follow me. And the question is, will you turn from that sin, turn from your idols, and by faith trust in the only thing that will save you, the sacrifice of Christ? You see, a sinless, innocent sacrifice had to be made to ratify that covenant. That's the same for you and I. That covenant that God entered into with us was ratified by the death of His Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this accusation that Jacob faced is the same accusation you and I face from the enemy called Satan. He accuses us day and night before the throne of God and we're aggravated at Him and the only recourse we have is this agreement we have with God by faith that Christ died as a sacrifice for our sin to set us free, to break those chains, to send us back home again. That's the only hope we have. But when we have that hope, we have confidence that no matter what this world throws at us, if God be for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, no one. Jacob was finding his confidence in following this God. It is my prayer that you and I find the same confidence to find redemption from sin, to find the great escape that the price was paid. Back in the late 1980s, there was this fellow named Michael Milken, and he was arrested for this junk bond scandal. Milken, it's an appropriate name, he milked people for, for millions, billions of dollars. He milked them, yes. And he was put in jail, and the bond was set $250 million. You know what the amazing thing was? He paid it. $250 million. And he was released from jail. Eventually he went back to jail, went back to prison, served for 22 months of a 10-year sentence. 
But the amazing thing was the price was set so high and the price was, pay, the price was paid for his freedom. There is a price set for our release that we cannot pay, a debt we could not pay. But the good news for you and I is our rock has paid for our release. Jacob set up this pillar as a, as a monument, this heap as a testimony. And the rock, our rock, Christ Jesus, has paid for our redemption so you and I can go free. Our memorial is not a stone. Our memorial is a cross. Our memorial is a stone, the stone that was rolled away and the tomb is empty. That's the memorial of our covenants. And that is what bought our freedom. And that is the only source of our great escape. Let us pray together.